Well, let's say that you roll up to an intersection in your car, and there you see someone standing there with a cardboard sign, and he or she has a sign that says, uh, will work for food. Or maybe it says, uh, my children are hungry. Uh, what's your response? What do you do? I'll tell you what I'm prone to do is nothing. So I don't want to make eye contact. I don't want to see that pain. I don't want to see that desperation in that person's eyes. Out of sight, out of mind. Maybe for you, where you go is in your mind. You start thinking, you start saying, why is that person in that desperate condition? And your mind just naturally gravitates to things like, well, they're lazy, they're irresponsible, they've made poor decisions. That's their problem. I'm living my life responsibly. I talked to somebody this past week. Uh, he and his wife, they budget for that type of situation. They plan to show compassion whenever they find it. And so what he would do, generally speaking, maybe not every time, but he would tend to pull his car over, park it, walk up, introduce himself to the man, find out what the need is, and more times than not, he will buy him food and something to drink, give it to him, pray for him, and then he goes on with the rest of his day. I'm not necessarily suggesting that we always have to do that every time we find a need, but that's the heart of compassion we're going to talk about today. And I have wondered, what if a couple thousand Christians in Manhattan would purpose, well, for the next month, I will do that. And we had groups of Christians surrounding people in need and praying for them. And get, I wonder what that would be like. Today we're going to do two, three things as we, look at, as we return to our study of Deuteronomy. First of all, we're going to see how God expected the Jewish nation to show compassion and generosity to the poor in their midst. It was an expectation. And second, we're going to see how in the New Testament, the early church very spontaneously, naturally, fulfilled that expectation, not because there was a command that said do it, it, it just flowed from their lives, who they were. And then thirdly, because of the, the needs that we see in our community and here in our, our own uh, uh, church here at Faith, uh, we're going to give you a very tangible way to respond, uh, a corporate response uh, of compassion toward the poor. But we begin today in, in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, Old Covenant Compassion for the Poor. And we're going to rehearse or just remind ourselves what, what was commanded on the Sabbath day. And we're going to look at Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. Now, I want us to, to notice the emphasis in this commandment to remember the Sabbath day. And notice how every person in the household and every member of society was included, including the least of these, the poor in their midst. And so this is what we read in Deuteronomy 5.12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. It's interesting if you look in, he's about to give the rationale why. If you look at Exodus in the, the, the most uh, 
familiar expression of the Ten Commandments, there the paradigm for the Sabbath is the creation week. He says, because God worked six days and rested on the seventh, you should too. You should imitate him. Don't think that you're busier and more important than God. No, imitate your creator as a declaration that his creation is good. And so that was the paradigm in Exodus 20. But here notice the paradigm, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And so here, deliverance from Egypt is the paradigm. Because they were delivered from slavery, they weren't supposed to act like slaves, where they had to work seven days a week. And this included everybody, not just the head of households that had a say, everybody, their sons, their daughters, uh, sojourners who lived in their midst, even their animals uh, were not to work. And so the entire society was given a day of rest. It was a gift as a declaration for what God had done for them, including the poor. When they were in Egypt, that was not an option, but now that God had delivered delivered them, they should celebrate this Sabbath. Interesting, the law not only established a Sabbath day to be observed every seventh day, it also established a Sabbath year. And it was a Sabbath year that was full of generosity. Uh, We won't look at Exodus 23, but it instructed the people to plant crops six years, and then on the seventh year, the land was to lie fallow. And so the land was given a release. The land itself could rest from its toil. Here we see in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, it builds on, on Exodus uh, 23, and it teaches that during the Sabbath year, not only was the land released from its toil, as well, the poor are released from the burden of their debts. And so this is the main passage we're going to look at today. In Deuteronomy 15, we begin in verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. And so verse 1 there literally reads, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And so just like the land was released, uh, those that were poor, those that were in debt was the main way that people uh, experienced poverty or just this crushing debt the poor were given this year of release from their debts. And scholars actually disagree on what, uh, what is actually being taught here. There are three primary options. Uh, it could have been that the entire debt was forgiven, wiped out. So if you owed 500 bushels of barley, Sabbath year came, no more. You don't owe it at all. Uh, others think that it was, was basically a suspension of the debt during that year. Uh, Like if you have a student loan and you go back to school, you get a deferment, right? You don't have to pay for those years. Some people think that that's what was happening, that the poor didn't have to pay their debt and then it it resumed afterwards. Others think that it was the the pledge or kind of the collateral that was, was had to be given when people incurred debt. It was usually a piece of property. So it may be that when the Sabbath year came, it's no longer held as collateral. It, it was given back. And so, honestly, I, I'm un, unsure on which I think is most, I, I tend to think the first one is the most likely, but for our purposes today, it's not essential that we nail it down. The rest of the chapter is very, very clear. It advocates generosity, compassion 
toward the poor. And so that, that just screams, this passage just screams that. As we saw, if you were here last week, we looked at the food laws. There was a different standard applied to those outside the covenant. And uh, that was the case for debts as well. Verse 3 probably has in mind a foreign merchant as opposed to an immigrant who was living in their, their midst. He says, from a foreigner, you may exact it, but your hand shall release whatever of yours is with your brother. And so people outside the covenant, the, we aren't told the logic. The logic may be that since people outside the covenant, they don't have to let their land lie fallow. It could be that their income continued to flow during that year, and so it was only appropriate that they continued to, to repay their debt. But when it came to their, their brothers, their fellow Jews living under the covenant, they were given this year of release. And verse 4 is interesting in light of what we read later in the passage. He says, however, there will be no poor among you. Poverty will be wiped out since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If you only listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all this commandment which I am commanding you today. And so here the statement is, there will be no poor among you. How does that square with what we're going to see down in verse 11, where, uh, where you find where Moses says, the poor will never cease to be in the land. And this is a verse you find quoted in the New Testament as well. How do those two things square? Well, I agree with those who, who would say that this is a deliberate tension. I think it's highly unlikely that Moses wrote, there will be no poverty, and he kept writing, and then he got confused, and he said, there will always be poor in the land. Highly unlikely. I think what he's saying is this deliberate tension. It's the, the ideal versus the reality. The ideal is if you obey God and you, you are compassionate toward the poor and you give this year of release, you will find that there won't be poor in the land. Uh, everybody will be taken care of. There is plenty if you're only generous and you, you have an open hand. But Israel lived out this calling so imperfectly that the reality was is that there would always be poor in the land. Therefore, there will always be a need for compassion. Verse 4 reflects what we see throughout Deuteronomy. The people's obedience and God's blessing go hand in hand. If the people were faithful to forgive debts during the Sabbath year, there would be no poverty among them. And this lack of poverty, that was the primary evidence of God's blessing. Not the rich getting richer and the poor getting poor. It's a lack of poverty. That was evidence of God's blessing. Uh, verse 6 says that God's blessing would also be evident in Israel's standing relative to other nations. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. And you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. This isn't a command for Israel to go rule and dominate other nations. It's more a statement of, of economic reality. If they were generous to the poor and they experienced God's blessing, they would have a type of prosperity that relative to other nations, it would just be obvious. They would be the nation that was this, this, uh, this light to the rest of the nations. They would have this, this prosperity and God's blessing. They would find themselves stronger than the surrounding nations. One of the reasons why Israel went into exile generations later is because they didn't live this out. They didn't follow Deuteronomy 15. They forgot what Moses told them over and over and over to remember 
When you get in the land and you are eating from and drinking from vineyards that you didn't plant and you're living in houses that you didn't build, remember that God is the one that gave you this land and that God is the one that gave you this ability to, to make wealth, as he says earlier in Deuteronomy. Because they forgot that, because the wealthy were callous toward the poor, because they oppressed the poor, and they were just like all the other nations. So why not go live in the other nations? They were sent into exile. Beginning in verse 7, Moses challenges the people to show generosity to the poor gladly and willingly. And notice how Moses talks about various parts of the body. He talks about their eyes, he talks about their hands, he talks about their hearts. And you and I would do well to pay attention to what we do with our bodies. We live with our bodies, right? That's how we interface in this world. But this is what Moses says in verse 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor shall you close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. And so instead of being hard-hearted, they were to be tender-hearted. Instead of being tight-fisted, what I've got, I'm going to hold on to with all of my might. I dare you to try to pry this out of my hands. Instead of being tight-fisted, being open-handed to the poor. And here, the, here, here was a call to lend to those whatever the need is, whatever he lacks. And it's interesting, given that the loan would be forgiven or released when the Sabbath year came, Moses warns against having this cold, calculating approach to giving to the poor. And so in verse 9, look at the logic. He says, Beware that there is no base or wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission, it's near. And your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. And so you see the scenario there. Moses says, what if it's like a year, year and a half from the the Sabbath year, and you start reasoning? And this, in my mind, kind of tilts the balance toward this is a full forgiveness of the debt. But uh, the, you start reasoning, you say, well, it's, it's like a year and a half till this year of Sabbath. Gosh, if it were five years to the Sabbath, then I might loan on the money because I would recoup almost all of it then, but I just can't do it. So he warns against that, said, and that's so true to, to human nature, right? Instead of looking at the need and asking the question, do I have means? Can I meet that need? We look at ourselves and we say, what am I going to have to give up? And so it's a self-centered, hard-hearted approach to the poor. And so Moses warns against your eye being hostile to the poor, looking at them with contempt and hostility as opposed to compassion. And throughout Scripture, we're told, it's very, very clear, God hears the cry of the poor, and he notices how his people respond to the poor. And verse 10 confirms that a a person's heart attitude absolutely mattered in the Old Covenant. It wasn't enough to just fulfill the letter of the law and call it good and then be embittered because you just resent having to give up some of your hard-earned money. I hope you don't have that, that stereotype toward the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. They were to love God from the heart. They were to love their neighbor. And love is patient. Love is kind. 
And so he says this in verse 10, you shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him because for this thing, the Lord, your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. That's the way I used to be in church. I'll be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Screaming, my mom would stifle me with coats and pile it on me. So that, that, that doesn't bother me. Um, So he's talking about a hard attitude. Don't give and then resent it. He says, the Lord will bless you in all your work and your undertakings. You should be kind and patient when you give. And then verse 11, he says, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. And so since there will always be poor in your midst, that doesn't mean, well, I can give to them tomorrow. No, it means we should always be ready and generous, willing to give, compassionate. Our heart should go out. Our hands should be open. Our eyes should, should make contact with people in need. And so that's what we find in the Old Covenant. When we come to the New Testament and the New Covenant, we find this same compassion for the poor. And in the first century, the, the church was very impoverished in, in most places for a variety of reasons. A couple were prominent. Number one, there was a famine in the land, and so it was just hard times for everybody. And number two, Christians were discriminated against. If you were a Jew and you became a Christian, there was discrimination. People might boycott your business. They might not employ you. They might not, might not uh, uh, go to your business because you were not, no longer one of them. And so there was some punishment that way. But Acts 4 describes how the early church very spontaneously addressed the needs of the poor in their midst. And talking about the the church in Jerusalem here, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And then verse 34 should sound very familiar if you were paying attention when I read Deuteronomy 15.4. He says, for there was not a needy person among them. That's the fulfillment. There will be no poverty, no poor among you. There was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. If you own two houses, can you imagine selling one of them, taking the proceeds, giving it to somebody and say, wherever you find needs, meet it. It is a big deal when you send out, sell houses and land and give it to the poor. That's what they did. Not out of shame, not out of guilt. That's a pretty poor motivation for giving to the poor. It will not sustain you. They gave out of compassion. Their hearts went out to their brothers who were poor. They were motivated by compassion. And compassion for the poor is something of a litmus test in both Testaments, really, for whether or not a person actually knew God. In the New Testament, you read this. When, you remember what happened to Zacchaeus uh, after he announced that he would give half of his possessions to the poor, and if he defrauded anybody, he would give back four times as much? You remember Jesus' comment? Salvation has come to this house. 
That was evidence of salvation. Zacchaeus was invaded by the love of God, and it was evident because of his compassion for the poor. And so he didn't buy salvation. No, he didn't buy it by giving away his money. No, that was just a natural byproduct because God had lavished him with love. He showed that love to other people, that compassion. How about 1 John 3, 16 and 17? We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And then look at the logic of verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? How is it possible? It's inconceivable that someone would turn to God and say, God, I'm eternally grateful that when I was spiritually impoverished, impoverished, when I didn't have a chance, when I was your enemy, when I was dead in my sin, you sent your one and only son to die for me. I will praise you for eternity. But that guy over there who has a need, I could care less. That's his problem. It's not my problem. Uh, John says, how is it possible that the love of God abides in that person? No, if we're grateful for what God has done to us, we just naturally turn around and we show that same compassion to other people. And I realize I'm, I'm simplifying it. There are complex issues, okay? The, the Bible teaches more than generosity. It teaches about work and all these things. But I'm talking about a hard attitude for the people of God. It's a litmus test on whether people really know God but whether our hearts go out to the poor. We treat others the way God has treated us. Well, given the, the needs in our community and, and also the needs here in, in, in this church, uh, we would like for you to consider being part of a corporate response uh, that will be used to help people in need, both in our midst and in our community. We put together a little video, like a four-minute video that explains uh, this effort we're calling for Manhattan. And so if you'd turn your attention to the screen. The mission of our church is to help people come to faith in Christ and experience God in all of life. And one of the ways that we're committed to carrying out this mission is by helping individuals and families at faith and in the community meet financial needs during times of crisis, transition, and unforeseen circumstances. It is our hope and prayer that as we help alleviate overwhelming material burdens, opportunities will be created to attend to spiritual needs and share the gospel as well. Over the next few weeks, we're inviting every person at faith to contribute to this ministry by giving to the Four Manhattan Compassion Fund. Half the money collected for this fund between May 21st and June 11th will be used by the church to bless those seeking financial assistance. The other half will be given to two organizations serving children and families in the Manhattan area. Big Brothers Big Sisters, and the Manhattan Emergency Shelter. You may give in three ways. By putting your offering in the four Manhattan envelopes found in the seat backs and placing them in the offering bag during services. By visiting the giving kiosk in the office and using your debit card and being sure to select the four Manhattan option in the drop-down menu. Or you can give online at faithmanhattan.org. We're asking for all who are able to give $20. But any gift will be appreciated and used to demonstrate God's love and provision for the city. Uh, here at Misai, we house men, women, and children that are homeless. Anybody who's been evicted or doesn't have a place to go can come and um, 
get a warm meal, a shower, place to sleep over and over again is just the family with a couple of kids, you know, mom and dad are working, um, but they are just one car repair away from eviction. They're one um, health issue away from an eviction. And our clients are come from all walks of life. Um, it's not always what you picture as homelessness. Um, they're not always people who have been living outside. Rural homelessness looks very different. Um, and and um, they're, they're people you work with, they're people you go to school with, they're people you go to church with. And um, we don't judge them, we just try to help. We are a nonprofit organization that is over 100 years old. We are the nation's largest donor and volunteer support and mentoring network. And we are actually the largest mentoring organization in the state of Kansas. At Big Brothers Big Sisters, we hold the belief that inherent to every child is the ability to achieve success and thrive in life. And we um, seek to fulfill our belief or vision by providing children facing adversity with strong and enduring, professionally supported, one-to-one -one relationships that help change their lives for the better forever. Adversity comes in all shapes and forms, and it's definitely different for every child. Um, I think it's, it's about being given a set of cards that doesn't allow you to fulfill your full potential. So for the kids in our program, most of them come from single parent homes, low income families, but they may be from a two parent home. Maybe they're just lacking self-confidence or struggling to, making, to make friends. Maybe they're having issues in school. I'm actually a big sister myself. I have been for a couple years, so I can be a true testimony to the power of friendship and what this program can do for both littles and bigs involved. So if you wandered in here today and this is your first time with us, you're our guest, uh, we're not going to shake you down for $20. Uh, you're very welcome to give, but this is really uh, meant to be uh, an offering for those who call Faithy Free their, their church home. And many times the 80-20 the rule applies, 20% of the people give 80% of the offering. And in, in one sense, that's appropriate because those who have more should give more. Scripture encourages to give proportionally. But our thought is that for this Manhattan Fund is that we would ask everyone, every man, woman, and child to give a modest amount, to give $20 to this fund just as, as a way to be a true expression of our corporate need. So every single one of us would say, yeah, I'm in. I'm part of this expression of compassion for the poor in our midst. And so we're asking you to give $20. And we realize for some of you, $20 is not that big a deal. Others of you would say, I don't have $20. I don't have that margin in my, in my finances right now. And we, that, that's totally fine. I've talked to, to people over the years who are in tough financial straits, and they say, I wish I had more money, not just for me, but so I could give. And people understand it, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we, we certainly understand that. But uh, we'd encourage really all of you, some of you, those of you in college, those of you in high school, graduating seniors, get those cards, <laughs> toss the cards. <laughs> Toss the cards, keep the cash. Uh, some of you have uh, 
Some of you might be in middle school or elementary school. You might have a piggy bank. You might have a little fund. You might get an allowance. You might need to work to get $20, but, but you're not just the church of the future. You're part of the church right now. We want you to be able to say, yeah, I'm part of this, this expression of compassion. And so as the video mentioned, half of this offering will go to our compassion fund that we administer here. People in the church sometimes need help with rent or utilities or health expenses, and sometimes we help with people in the community. The other half will go to Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and the emergency shelter. And uh, so 500 of us gave $20. That would be $10,000. We'll be able to give away $5,000 to these two organizations. And so we, we feel like that would, be, that would be a blessing. So we have these cards in, your, in the seat in front of you. Uh, if you've come prepared today, you can give. Take this with you, and it, it'll tell you the three ways to give. There's a giving kiosk, which didn't totally work after the first service, but it's in the office. And then online, uh, there's a, you can give that way. But we know that this isn't a, in any way a cure-all, but it's a start. It's, it's a way for us to express our compassion. And so would you pray for me as we continue? God, we pray that we would be a compassionate people, not just in, in theory but in practice. We pray, God, that, that you would, would give us uh, open hands and generous hearts. And we pray that, that we would make eye contact with people who need help, and we would engage them with compassion, and we would uh, gladly enter into their lives and, and see how you have blessed us so that we can bless them and help meet their needs. God, we ask that you would, would deal with us on a heart level. God, this, this offering we're doing, uh, it's, it's really a symbolic of a, a larger commitment to compassion. We invite you to lead us into the future, show us where we need to go, how we need to conduct ourselves, what our response and involvement should be. But God, you've been so generous to us. We, we will forever, for eternity, be grateful. We pray that we would show that same compassion to others. And so give us this by, by your grace. Give us the will. Give us the means. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.